1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Hold yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are delighted to open Your Word together again this morning to come to the glorious, inspired text of Scripture that you, have penned, that you have breathed through the Apostle Peter's pen, and that we can pick it up today freely and as a, as a public gathering, study your word together. Father, we, we are so privileged as your people, called out of darkness into light to show the glory of the one who saved us. We pray that you would Speak to us through this Word this morning by Your Spirit. Please accompany the Word of God with spirit and power and full conviction. Turn our hearts from serving idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His return. To trust in You in a way that we have not yet begun to trust in You. To experience Your attributes in a way that we have not yet begun to. To grow in Christ-likeness. Father, please do this work. May we confess to you our sin of anxiety and learn to rest humbly in the power of your mighty hand. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The overall letter, the overall theme of the letter of 1 Peter is learning to live a holy life in a hostile world. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching his readers how to remain faithful to Christ, how to grow in personal holiness, how to live reflecting the glory of their Savior, even in the presence of great pressure, of great persecution uh, from a world who is hostile toward them and really is ultimately hating Christ. Let me show you this theme in the letter of 1 Peter. Look at chapter 1. You can turn back just a couple of chapters. 
chapter 1, verses 13 through 19, the Apostle Peter writes to his beloved churches and he says, preparing, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, and you can see the same theme there. Be holy, for I am holy. You are purchased. You are bought. You are mine. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2, 9-12. through 12. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, here's the context. Since that is true, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, throughout this letter, you can see the theme so clearly in those verses, but Peter begins to get very specific about various situations of hostility that would certainly have come upon the people to whom he's writing. For example... Look at chapter 2, the, the, the persecution of foolish, ignorant, and pagan emperors and governors. You can see verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now you have to understand what kind of command this is, because they would need to have this kind of respect and live a holy life even under such emperors as Nero. This letter was written during the year AD 64 when Nero burned the city of Rome because he had a, an immense craving and lust to build, to build up his own city, his own empire, his own pride. And so when the, the, the city of Rome, the people of Rome began to grow bitter because of the loss that they experienced under this fire, they directed that 
resentment toward Nero. And so what did he do? He said, well, it wasn't me, it was the Christians. And so all that hostility began to turn toward the Christian people. So they would have to experience that sort of pressure, that sort of persecution, the unjust, uh, the, the injustice of crooked masters. Look at chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. But this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter also refers to the ungodly behavior of disobedient husbands and wives. Could you imagine a wife coming to Christ when her husband and the whole family is pagan in their idolatrous worship, and now she's a Christian? How does she live? How does she, how does she endure that kind of hostility? Look at 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, whether they see your respectful, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing we wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And verse 7, husbands living with disobedient wives. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then also, Peter refers to the maligning of former friends. Turn over one more chapter to chapter 4, and you see there, verses 1 through 5, Peter's encouragement to those who used to have friends with whom they partied, and now they're turning on them. Verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to Him who is already to judge the living and the dead. You can see these many situations that would bring persecution and pressure on these believers. And Peter gives to his readers transforming truths about Christ and His saving work in their lives so that they could have confidence and hope and even joy and guidance in how they are to navigate and think through and live in the midst of various situations that they're experiencing. Now, coming to the final chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 5, Peter gives several exhortations, one right after the other, continuing to instruct them about how to live a holy life in a hostile world. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He talks to elders. 
And he exhorts them to shepherd the flock of God in the way that honors Christ. In chapter, or in verse, in verse 5, he says, You who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. In verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Verse 7 uh, is also included in verse 6. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Verse 9, resist the devil, and so on. And the exhortation which I want to draw our attention today is the fourth exhortation found in verses 6 and 7. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And of course, the reason I'm drawing our attention to that particular exhortation is because of its explicit reference to anxiety. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is a brief exhortation, but in it exists a wonderful, Spirit-inspired help for anxiety. I mean, you could understand that the high-pressure situations in which these particular believers found themselves would bring a great temptation to be sinfully anxious. Think, of, think through those that we read through. How intense that would be for them. And on top of that, not only had they experienced much loss and pain in the wake of the burning of Rome, but severe hostile treatment for the sake of Christ and blame for something they didn't do. I mean, it, it's, it goes on and on. How great their temptation to anxiety would be. So what is a believer to do in response to the anxiety that begins to take hold of the heart under such pressures from the world? Various pressures. And this text can include nearly any any pressure and temptation to anxiety that you could think of, physical provision, relational conflict, whatever. This is what Peter addresses in our text, and he writes is, what he writes is a truly important facet of what it means to fear the Lord, like we've been talking about. Look at verses 6 and 7. These two verses, I want you to see here, are one complete thought, one sentence. Humble yourself, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's one sentence. What does it mean to be casting your anxieties, all your anxieties on Him? What does that mean? Literally, the word casting, right, means to be throwing your anxieties on, to place them on God, to hand them over. One commentator says this casting depicts a decisive, energetic, energetic act by which believers relieve themselves of the heavy burden of all their anxieties. But here's the thing, as I read that, I tell you that, I don't immediately understand how that is done. Do you follow me? It sounds so much like a physical action, like flopping my heavy backpack on the bed. I can do that, right? Got this big old weight, and I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm home from a long day, whatever, and I flop it on the bed. But what I need to deal with is not a physical burden, but a spiritual burden. 
the spiritual burden of anxiety. So how do I throw my spiritual burden of anxiety on God? Certainly, this can be done through prayer, but as I pray, what am I thinking about? What am I, what am I talking to God about? What am I asking Him to do for me, in me? What are the activities of my heart toward God during that time of prayer? Is it as simple as telling God, God, I'm now throwing all my anxieties on you, and then I expect that soon a feeling of peace will follow? Is that all there is to it? I don't think so. Though there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with saying that to God. I mean, that's what we... God, I, I give you my anxiety. I give you my fear right now. Please take it from me. Please. I think this text is clearer than that and much more spiritually helpful and encouraging. And I think the key to casting our anxieties on God lies primarily in the command that comes before it. Which is what? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You see, casting our anxieties on God flows out of the heart attitude and spiritual action of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Notice that casting our anxieties on our God is a participle. If you like grammar, you'll see this. And casting is a participle, not the main commanding verb of this sentence. Now this, this may sound, ooh, that sounds like you're going to school again. This makes a difference. I'm serious. This is so helpful. Humble yourselves is the main command. The main command, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Casting our anxieties on Him is the attendant circumstance of humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. In other words, the accompanying action or result of humbling myself under the mighty hand of God is that I will be casting my anxieties on Him. Think of it this way. If your wife tells you to come to her and get some clean clothes to wear from her, but your arms are full of dirty clothes, what has to happen? In order for you to go through the process of taking those clean clothes from her and putting them on, you'll have to lay down the dirty clothes. That's kind of the way it is with humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. In the process of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, you will be, by necessity, casting your anxieties on Him. Because you really can't truly humble yourself under God's mighty hand and continue to entertain sinful anxiety. They're mutually exclusive. You can't hold both in your arms. So in order for us to understand more clearly what it means to cast our anxieties on God, we must first get at the heart of what Peter commands us here when he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So my main idea in all of this, or Peter's main idea, is in order to be casting all your anxiety on God, you must humble yourself under His mighty hand. And this is going to take the form of four points for us this morning. What kind of humility... Here's the question you can logically understand this text by. What kind of humility leads to casting all your anxiety on God? So there's four descriptions I see in this text. One, the humility that desires God's grace. That'll come right at the end of verse 5. The humility that submits to God's sovereignty. Six, the first part. 
Three, the humility that waits on God's exaltation. Six, the second part, the humility that rests in God's care. This, if, if our hearts can humble ourselves in this way, we will be casting our anxieties on Him. Let me show you how this is from Peter's wonderful words. Number one, the humility that desires God's grace. This comes at the very end of verse 5. It's simply the quotation. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That phrase is meant to logically move us from Peter's command to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, move us from that command to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He gives this phrase as a motivation for clothing ourselves in humility and taking a humble posture before God. That phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, is is the motivation. It's quoted from Proverbs 3 and verse 34. It's also found in James 4.6. Proverbs 3.34 says, Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. James 4.6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if you want to experience the powerful work of God's resistance in your life, then take a posture of pride toward others and pride before God. But if you want to experience the powerful work of God's grace in your life, then humble yourself before others and before God. This is, this is, or what is this humility then that enjoys God's grace? Well, we can define this humility as a lowly-mindedness Self-abasement. I love how Philippians 2 defines humility. Considering others, including God, more important than yourself. Prioritizing the interest of others, including God's interests, before your own personal interests. That's humility. The willingness to assume a lowly position in order to serve others and serve God. That's humility. Notice that Peter commands us here to clothe ourselves. Isn't that interesting? What other spiritual attitudes are we commanded to clothe ourselves in throughout the New Testament? Clothe ourselves in humility or gird humility on ourselves like it would tie a towel around our waists. Does that ring any memories in Scripture? This is certainly meant to remind us of the scene in the upper room in which Peter's feet were washed by the towel that was tied about the waist of our humble Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. In John 13, Jesus Christ voluntarily and willingly took upon Himself the lowest position of a house slave in order to meet the needs of His followers for their good, for the Father's glory. But remember that that act of foot washing was an illustration of the ultimate washing of Christ, the ultimate servant, as He would take upon Himself 
the form of man, take upon himself the form of a servant, making himself of no reputation as a man, perfectly obeying the will of his Father, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ girded himself with humility, the lowest position, and endured the greatest afflictions willingly in order to meet the eternal needs of His beloved people, to wash them from sin, and to serve the eternal purposes of His Father, and bring His Father the glory He deserved. That is the kind of humility that Peter's talking about. It is the humility that willingly, voluntarily, assumes, accepts, the lowest position necessary to serve the real needs of others and to serve the redemptive purposes of God for His glory. And when the pressures and persecution come upon us through various circumstances and we're crushed by them and we're weighed down and brought low, humility willingly accepts that low position from God's hands so that God's purposes will be fulfilled in us and through us for His glory. That's how Jesus humbled Himself. Think of the position to which Jesus was humbled under the mighty hand of God. Even death on a cross, right? How low was that? How painful was that? And yet, what great glory it accomplished for the sake of Christ and, and, and His Father. And that's how we as Christ followers humble, must humble ourselves too. And when we're tempted to be sinfully anxious under such pressures, humility learns to cast those anxieties on the Lord, as we'll see more clearly and specifically in a few moments. Now, what is the contrasting response to humility that, that Peter writes about here? What's the contrast? Pride, right? And if humility is coupled together with if, if humility is coupled together with casting our anxieties on Him, what should we couple together with pride? That's right. You got it. Continuing in our anxieties. The opposite of that. Do you realize that continuing in sinful anxiety under the pressures and persecution that God ordains for us is actually pride? Have you ever seen the connection between those two? It's simplicity in this text. How is that so? Well, in the first sermon of this series, we, we tried to biblically define sinful anxiety, and we came up with this definition, to be troubled, upset, disturbed, dismayed because of the cares of life that press upon us so that one is distracted from knowing and enjoying God, distracted from trusting Him, distracted from doing His will. And when we entertain this anxiety, when we entertain sinful anxiety like that, in reality, you know what we're saying? We're saying, I don't deserve this. I don't think this is wise. This situation that I'm in. I don't think this will do me or anyone else any good. You ever said things like that in your mind? How is this doing any good? This is too much. This is too long. I want out. I want to control this myself. I want to change all this. Isn't that the heart of anxiety? At least that's the way my heart looks when I'm anxious. 
And all of those responses are responses of pride toward God who ordained those pressures and perspectives in our lives. They are a response to God that in reality says, God, you are not treating me justly. You're not wise in what you've given me. You're not, you're not, you can't work good in this. God, you've given me too much. You've held me down too long. God, you need to take me out from under this affliction. I want to be God over these circumstances instead of you because I would do things differently, God. Can you hear that in your heart sometimes? What is all that but pride? And that's the heart of sinful anxiety. And how does God promise to respond to the one who's proud? He opposes the proud. He will set himself in battle against them. And for his child, he, he sets himself to chasten that child. He will oppose them until his good will is done. So the question is, what kind of response will you have toward God when you are grieved by various afflictions? What kind of response will I have? What kind of response will you have toward God when you're tempted to entertain anxiety under those various pressures? Humility or pride? Casting your anxieties on Him through humbling yourself under His mighty hand? Or entertaining your anxieties through exalting yourself in pride before Him? Well, when under such circumstances... What do you want to experience from God? An overflow of His grace or His personal resistance toward you? We need God's grace, don't we? And we feel that, especially in those times. We need God's grace, not His resistance under such pressures. We need to experience and enjoy God's unmerited, undeserved, inexhaustible divine resources a favor working in us and through us for our good, for our help, for our, for our um, upholding, our safekeeping, our endurance in faith, our, our progress in Christ's likeness, His glory. We need it. We need it so much. In fact, we need His grace more than we need to get out from underneath the pressures and the persecutions and the afflictions and the situations that tempt us to anxiety. Isn't that true? We need His grace more than we need relief. We need God's sustaining power. Like, Pete, like Paul experienced when, when he was crushed under his own weakness and the demonic messenger, and he said, God, please take this. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. We need God's surpassing peace. That's, that's a gift of His grace. Philippians 4, 4-9. through In every situation, I have learned to be content. The peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind. We need God's spiritual protection from temptation. We need God's special comfort. We need God's sufficient provisions. We need God's sanctifying productivity. Romans 5 talks about that. He causes sufferings to produce Christ-likeness in us. We need God's sanctifying productivity. We need all the grace that God provides to those who humble themselves before Him. So this is why Peter calls us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God in every anxiety-instigating situation, big or small, because that humility will be met with an abundance of God's grace. That's why there's this little word 
therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Therefore says, humble yourself because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what kind of humility leads to casting all anxieties on God? First of all, the kind that desires to experience and enjoy God's grace under the pressure and in the persecution even more than it desires to throw off those unpleasant circumstances. Do you see the conflict there? What do we want more? Grace or relief? Humility says, I want grace. I want God's grace and all its effect in my life. That's what I want. That's humility. It's the kind of humility that does not anxiously resist God in pride, but willingly assumes a place of submission under God, accepting the low position under His affliction, knowing that God will fulfill His glorious purposes through that low position, just like He did in the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you ever wonder if God can bring good out of the worst scenario, just look at the cross. I just asked someone that yesterday. Is the cross good or bad? Yes. <laughs> right? That ought to give you hope. That's what God can do. That humility will be met with endless supply of grace. So in order to be casting your anxiety on God, you must humble yourself under His mighty hand. So what kind of humility? Not only the humility that desires God's grace alone, but now secondly, number two, the humility that submits to God's sovereignty. The humility that submits to God's sovereignty. Let's consider the impact of this first phrase in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's the big deal right there for this point. The mighty hand of God. This phrase, the mighty hand of God, is an awesome phrase in the true meaning of the word awesome. It's common in the Old Testament. And it depicts God's sovereign power over all things in the universe. And specifically, over all the workings of human existence. The mighty hand of God. For example, in creation... Isaiah 48, 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Wow. Right? The mighty hand of God. Israel's rescue. Exodus 3, 19 through 20. But I know that the king of Israel will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. After that, he will let you go. Wow, the mighty hand of God. Israel's leading. Ezekiel 20, 33 and following. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be a king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples 
And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face, as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out to the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Fatherly discipline. Job 30, 20 and 21. I cry to you for help and you did not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. God's mighty hand fulfills all His purposes and all that He does. Psalm 57, 2. I cry out to the Lord God Most High, to God who fulfills His purposes for me. Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Isaiah 14, 24 to 27, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? What's the answer to those questions? No one. No one. Isaiah 46, 8-10. Remember this. Stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not yet done. Saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Now you bring all the workings of God's mighty hand and bring it to His love for the believer. And we read, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. These verses declare that it is God's mighty hand that orders literally Every event in the universe and in our lives. No, he is not guilty for the, sin of, uh, for the sinful acts of men. He's not guilty for those. But he ordains and allows those sinful acts and uses those sinful acts sinlessly to fulfill his own eternal purposes for his glory. Just as he did with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every circumstance of our lives comes to us from the mighty hand of God. The pleasant, the unpleasant. There's no triumph or trial, blessing or loss, delight or disaster that does not come to us through the mighty hand of God. And these verses declare to us that everything God ordains, everything that comes from His mighty hand, He decrees in order to accomplish His eternal purposes. He decrees in order to call His chosen children to justification, through sanctification, and into glorification. 
His mighty hand ordains everything, and in everything, His mighty hand does all that is necessary to deliver His chosen people from their depravity and to develop Christ-likeness in them for their good, for their joy, for His glory. So, do you believe this is true about the mighty hand of God? Are you convinced? I just read to you all those texts. Are you convinced from the heart? Then if you would learn to be casting your anxieties on God, then under every unpleasant pressure or persecution, big or small, you must learn to humble your heart in the reality that all things come to you from the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under that mighty hand. Humble yourself to what His hand brings to you. Humble yourself to what His hand purposes for you. Give over to mindful, contented submission and resign the pride of resistance. When you feel anxious about that evil, when you feel anxious about the evil that seems to be at work behind the circumstances that have come to you, when you feel anxious because you cannot see how any good can possibly come from your situation, then take that anxiety and cast it on the sovereignty of God's mighty hand in all things. Humble yourself to God's irresistible degree in all things. Humble yourself to His irresistible work of good in you, through you, for you, in all things. Do you see how that humility brings you to a place of rest? God will not cease to be sovereign over things, all things, because He'll not cease to be God. And God will not change in His goodness toward you because He will not cease to love you in Christ, in all things. Submit yourself to God's sovereignty. So what kind of humility leads to casting all anxiety on God? Not only the humility that desires God's grace, not only the humility that submits to God's sovereignty, but thirdly this morning, the humility that waits on God's exaltation. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Please notice that second phrase. So that at the proper time he may exalt you. What does that mean? It means that the same mighty hand of God that placed you under the pressure, that placed upon you these unpleasant events, is the same mighty hand that can lift you up out of the pressure whenever he chooses. Do you see that? To be exalted in this verse means to be raised or lifted up. And this refers to God's ability to lift you up out of your trials, to lift you up out of your trouble, your afflictions, your tribulations, your sufferings in which you are being tempted to feel anxious. Since God's mighty hand powerfully ordained all these circumstances, then His mighty hand can certainly, powerfully raise you up out of them at any moment. We believe that about God. 
Have you seen him experientially turn things around just like that? He can do that. And ultimately, God will lift all of his children out of every trial and affliction when he brings them into the joy of his presence, either by their passage from this life into heaven or at his powerful, glorious return. That's the ultimate exaltation, isn't it? This lifting up of God's afflicted children by the power of his mighty hand is more fully described in uh, the end of this text. Notice verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his glory, eternal glory in Christ, here, here's, the, here's the exaltation. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In a moment, any moment God chooses, his mighty hand can restore you from that trial, can confirm you in his purposes, can strengthen you and establish you. And of course, the ultimate expression of this is when we're with him. So listen carefully. If God is able to raise us out of our troubles by his mighty hand, at any moment he chooses to do so, but he does not do so yet, what does that mean? That means he is not done working, working out all of his goodwill and redemptive purposes in us through the difficulty. Does that make sense? He's not done yet. He's more to do. He has more to produce. He's got more to do in us and for us and through us, for our good, for our progress in Christ's likeness, for the salvation of others. He has more to do. For the spiritual maturing of others, for the stirring of, of hearts for others, for the progress and completion of all his good plans, for the joy of his people, for the honor of Christ, he has more to do. If he doesn't exalt you yet, it's good. And that's that humility that waits on God's exaltation, waits on his timing. When God is done with what he's doing in any given tribulation, it is at that moment he will lift us up out of it. And more to the point, God will leave us under the pressure of an affliction until we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Look at the, the grammatical connection in verse, between verse, in verse 6 between humbling ourselves under his mighty hand and his exalting us out of trouble. Look at it. Two words. So that. In order that. So that indicates what? A logical order a sequence of cause and effect, action and result. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, resign our balking anxious pride, rest contented under the sovereignty of God, submit to the irresistibility of His purpose among us, surrender the, to the goodness of His loving, saving purposes for His chosen children, then, at just the right time and the proper time and the fitting moment, He will lift us up out from under the pressure, restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us for His glory. Do you see the connection? It is God's mighty hand that brings the pressure. 
It's God's mighty hand that keeps the pressure there. It's God's mighty hand that relieves the pressure. And it's God's mighty hand that will do this again and again and again in the lives of his children using various difficulties for various lengths of time at various degrees of severity. Just when you get up out of one pressure, sometimes you go right back down into another one. Or sometimes you have a period where it's just pure delight. (laughs) It's all in God's purposes for you. Sometimes trials are so long and He strengthens your heart in them and He lifts you up out of them. But then you remember, there's something else to come in the future that's going to produce the same good work in me and through me. That's, That's what we need to be thinking. And to submit ourselves to wait on God's exaltation. So what kind of humility leads to casting our anxiety? The humility that desires God's grace, the humility that submits to God's sovereignty, the humility that waits on God's exaltation, and then finally, number four, the humility that rests in God's care. This is verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Notice these wonderful words, casting all your anxiety. He cares for you. What is the reason that you can be casting all of your anxieties on Him? What compels you to? What invites you to? Because He cares for you. Literally, to Him, it is a care concerning you. I love the emphasis of the original language. To Him, It's a care concerning you. Not that God is anxious about the things we're anxious about, but He has a special regard for us and our needs while we're under the pressures of affliction. He cares. He's concerned. He's deeply interested in meeting our true needs. Many of the things that we're tempted to be anxious about even, He wants to meet those needs, especially under the difficulty. He knows the kind of care we need in a trial better than we do. Do you realize that? And He cares more than we do about making sure those needs are met. To Him it is a care concerning you. Mark 4 38 to 41, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care, the same word, that we're perishing? And he woke and rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? And said to one another, oh, sorry, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. That's what helps you overcome anxiety. But fear for him. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Isn't that interesting? They ceased being afraid of the sea and became afraid of him who is master of the sea. That, that's how we overcome our anxieties. Matthew 10, 29-31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. 
You are of more value than many sparrows. The mighty hand that brought the affliction is the same mighty hand that keeps us under the affliction, is the same mighty hand that lifts us out of the affliction, is the same mighty hand that cares for us and provides for us all that we need in the affliction for as long as He chooses for us to be under that affliction. Can you grab all that? That is so precious. Under the moment when the, when the pressure is the hardest and the heaviest. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. He cares for you to give you strength. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He cares for you to supply your need. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humbly rest in God's compassionate and perfect care for you under the difficulty. And thereby, you will be casting your anxieties about having all that you need and physically and spiritually and put it all on the mighty hand of His perfect care and provision. It's, it's kind of just the attended result when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. How do we cast all of our anxieties on God when we're under the pressures and persecutions that are so familiar to the Christian life? In closing, just remember, in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells and helps every one of God's children by humbling ourselves under His mighty hand. At the very moment, the anxieties begin to grip us. You know, isn't part of the struggle remembering all this stuff at the right time? That's what we need. We need the Spirit of God. Right when all the pressure is beginning and we're feeling anxious, wait a minute. God's mighty hand brought this. God's mighty hand will keep this as long as He determines. I'm going to wait. He can, he can pull me up out of this whenever He's ready. And as long as He has me under it, He will care for me. Mindfully submit to His sovereignty. Mindfully wait on His exaltation. Mindfully rest in His care. So I invite you today, my brothers and sisters in Christ, confess to your Heavenly Father your anxious pride. See it as that. See it as pride. See it for the sin that it is. And then gratefully receive and rest in the forgiveness and cleansing work of Christ. It's, it's, it's yours already. And then by the grace of God, take to your heart and practice the humility of this text. Don't live disconnected with the Scriptures. Fill your heart with this. And what's the basis? What's the basis for your certainty, dear Christian, that God will sovereignly order all things for your good and lift you up out of the affliction when His purposes are fulfilled and care for you all the way through? Is the basis for your confidence about this your own goodness and perfect performance in the trial? No. No. The certainty that God will do this for you as His child is because of the perfect saving work of Christ and your unbreakable union to Him. He's going to treat you the way He treated His Son. Romans 8, 31-34. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's your security that everything Peter says in chapter 5 here will be true for you if you're in Christ. Before I pray this morning, I need to ask you, dear friend, are you a child of God this morning? Are you a child of God? Do you know that you're right with God? Have you assurance that God has forgiven all the guilt of your sin and removed all the punishment that your sin deserves? Are you assured of that? Are you certain that you have eternal life with God and His love? Maybe you say, how how can I be sure of those things? Well, the Word of God would lead us to make some spiritual evaluation, to look at the evidences in our lives, and some of those are this. Have you begun to confess your sin? To grieve over it, to turn away from it? Have you begun to trust in Christ alone to make you right with God, to rescue you from the, sin of, from the punishment of your sin? Have you begun to trust in Christ alone to keep you right with God, to change your life into what God intends for it to be, to, tr- to raise you from the grave someday? Are you trusting in God to do that, in Christ, to bring you home to heaven? Have you received Christ as God made man who came to earth to save sinners like us. Have you received Him as He is? As the only one who can save sinners from God's eternal wrath? Have you unconditionally received Him as master of your life? I'm not saying you're perfect by coming to Christ. No, but He's the master now. And you're submitting to Him. That's that's the beginning of salvation. Are you resting in His perfect life to keep you righteous? To give you a righteous standing before God? Are you resting in His bodily, bloody death to remove your guilt and to absorb your punishment? Is Is that your rest? Are you trusting in His resurrection to deliver you from the power of sin? If you have truly received Christ as He is and are resting solely in Him and His saving work, then God tells us in His Word that He has already begun a work of grace in your life and you are born again. And you're His child. And you're forgiven. And you have eternal life. If you see those things going on in your life, that's God at work in you. But if not, if you're still continuing in your sin, loving it, covering it, minimizing it, ignoring it, defending it without godly sorrow or repentance? If you're still trusting in yourself or your own goodness, thinking that you can somehow please God by what you do, then I implore you as well this morning to humble yourself before Christ. My dear friend, you may do many religious things before other people, but that does not buy you any favor with God. You can make a habit of doing many external 
actions that appear spiritual, but if in your pride you insist upon continuing in sin and living as the master of your own life or offering to God your own righteousness in exchange for His favor, then you are still dead in your sin under the condemnation of God and without spiritual eternal life in Christ. That's the way all of us come into the world. So I want to urge you again today, humble yourself before the holiness of God. Confess your sin for what it is. When you see God's holiness, how can you help but see yourself as a sinner just like the rest of us? See that your judgment is just. See your need for mercy. Humble yourself before the righteousness of Christ. Confess your inability to please God by what you do. And confess that Christ can and does please God perfectly in your place. Humble yourself before the cross. Don't try to find another way of appeasing God's justice against our sin. No. Humble yourself before the cross. Receive it for what it is. Cast yourself upon the mighty mercy of God and receive what Christ has done through his life and death and resurrection to make you right with God. It's sufficient. It's powerful to save. And humbly kneel before the sovereignty of Christ and truly confess him as Lord of your life. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's, that's good news. So don't leave today without knowing that you belong to Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and this text. Thank you for its penetrating power. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us. It reveals our hearts for what they are. Our anxiety for what it is. Purge us. Cleanse us. Thank you for all of the saving provisions of Christ in whom we rest. Help us to see your glory, your mighty hand for what it is. And as we are cared for in your hand, may we know freedom from anxiety. And may our lives consequently bring you glory. Father, forgive us for knowing that you are our God and remaining in anxiety about so many things. May we be free from anxiety and bring you glory. Bring glory to your power, your might, your love, your goodness. We thank you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.